mercies we are not consumed, His compassions fail not, they are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee, He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have the privilege, the freedom, the opportunity to be here tonight to study your word, to reflect upon your grace, upon the depth and breadth of your grace plan toward us in providing us not only salvation, but a way of spiritual growth that continuously transforms us and that you continuously work in us to conform us to the image of Christ. Now, Father, as we continue this study in James, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that they would be clear to us as we concentrate on them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James 5, verse 7. James 5, verse 7. Now, everybody has had an opportunity to notice the new pulpit and the new screen. One of the things that we have is, I have a clock up here. Now, it's not as big as the old clock, but it is set three minutes slow to give everybody an opportunity to get here in plenty of time. So when it's five minutes, I guess we have to put things on Preston City time. Set that back by five more minutes. See, if I wait five minutes late to start, then I go over five minutes. Of course, I go over five minutes anyway. (laughs) James 5, 7 through 12. Now, we are starting a new section of this epistle. This is the conclusion to the epistle of James 5, 7 down to 520, and there are uh, several important doctrines to cover in this section related to the imminency of the coming of Christ, the doctrine of the rapture, doctrine of the second coming, doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ, endurance, uh, perseverance, as well as suffering, prayer, and what appears to be one of my favorite passages, what appears to be a passage dealing with sickness, but if you miss it, One of those great problem passages that always confuse seminary students and everybody runs around going, what do you think James 5, 13 and following really means? And it I'll give you a hint, it doesn't have anything to do with being sick. So we will get there eventually. But tonight we're going to start in verse 7 and we may get down to verse 8. Some of you will be glad because we won't quite make it to verse 9, which says, do not complain. (laughs) So we will start with verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Of the Lord is at hand. I'm going to read the whole paragraph. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. See, in the conclusion, he's picking up the major themes, the major doctrines he has hit us with in those first, uh, first three or four chapters. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, 
that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Well, when we come to verse 7, it begins in the English with the word therefore. This is a translation of the Greek un, which is a post-positive inferential particle. In Greek, post-positive means it always is the second word in the sentence. But it's the first word translated into English. And as an inferential particle, it tells us right away that James is drawing a conclusion. And whenever you see a therefore, you need to see why it's what it's there for. Just a little note of biblical study. Therefore always indicates a conclusion. He is wrapping things up. This is not, we have to ask the question, is he just drawing a conclusion from what he just said in the first part of the chapter? Or is he drawing a general conclusion? And after we do an analysis of the structure of the epistle, we'll see that he is really concluding the epistle. So there's about four things we need to notice in relation to this conclusion. The first is that he is concluding the epistle. We need to remember the format of the epistle. There is a clear structure to James in contrast to what a lot of commentaries suggest. James has a three-point sermon. Starts off with quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's the main body of this epistle. But like any good piece of literature, the main body is preceded by an introduction. And in that introduction, he, he introduces the theme of endurance and perseverance. The Greek word hupomones. Hupomones and its verb form hupomeno. And that should ring a bell in your thinking in relation to what we've been studying in John 15, that the key word for abiding in Christ is meno. So hupomeno is a compound verb based on the root verb meno, and it means to stay under. Uh, uh, Meno means to abide. Hupo, the preposition, means under, so it means to stay under and has the idea of hanging in there in the midst of difficult, overwhelming circumstances. And this is really the theme of James, is endurance produces maturity, and it is only in the status of Christian maturity that we share in the joy of Christ. He said, my joy I give to you in the upper room discourse. So this is the theme of James, and he is going to return to this theme in this last section from verse 7 down to verse 20. And now that it's dark here at night, with this new pulpit, we need to find a light. It certainly will help illuminate things a little bit. I feel like I'm in the darkness. I know Scripture says men love the darkness rather than the light. But it's hard to illuminate the Word of God when you can't see it real well. So, we have to work on that. So, we're going to come to the conclusion now. The conclusion returns to this theme that endurance is critical. The problem, apparently, with this congregation is that they have failed to endure. They've hit some hard times in their lives. They've hit some suffering. And they've tried to solve the problems of adversity through all kinds of human viewpoint techniques. We've seen that they've gotten involved in, in materialism lust and success lust. That was the problem at the end of the last section, which leads us to the second point in this introduction, is that in this last section... James has again rebuked his readers for their continuous carnality, specifically in the realm of materialism lust, sex lust, uh, or or success lust, money lust, where he has uh, uh, rebuked them for their uh, focus on making money, having success, successful businesses in order to solve their problems. Throughout this, he's pointed out that they've been guilty of an entire realm of mental attitude sins. There's been jealousy, bitterness, anger, hostility towards one another, which has led to divisions 
Uh, he even mentions that it's bordering on murder, at least mental attitude murder, in the congregation. Specifically in the, the immediate context, they have uh, been focused so much on riches, wealth, and power that they have uh, basically followed the culture around them and their way to solve the problems. And this is one of the most important things that as believers we have to recognize in our own lives is that we grow up in a culture. There's all kinds of ways in which the culture around us, whether it is first century Ephesus or um, whether it's first century Ephesus or whether it is fifth century uh, B.C. Greece or whether it is uh, the Middle Ages in the 10th to 12th century or the Enlightenment in the 18th century or the 20th century, there, is, there are certain cultural pressures that are always brought to bear on the believer that we sort of absorb from our culture as we grow up, from our teachers, from our friends, from our peers, from our parents. Whatever that cultural environment is, we learn this, that value system. And at points, that value system seems to overlap, parallel, or be consistent with the Scriptures. That's what we call establishment truth and morality it's for principles for believer and unbeliever alike. But it, it, even though there may be elements that are the same, there are planks, let's say, in that edifice that are the same. The overall way in which it's put together to build that edifice is wrong. So what has to happen when we become a believer is we're commanded not to be conformed to the world, to cosmic thinking, but we have to renew our minds. And that means we have to bring in the Holy Spirit's bulldozer, so to speak, and bulldoze the whole house down, not just... Find, oh, say, okay, well, 50% of these planks in the house are okay. But see, they're defined by the framework. Just because you have a piece of sheetrock in a $500,000 house and a piece of sheetrock in a $50,000 house, that sheetrock gains its meaning by what's around it. Does that make sense? And so, you, even though you have morality and establishment principles built into your cosmic thinking as an unbeliever, you have to renovate its entire framework because that plank relates to other aspects of your thinking, some of which is excruciatingly false and based on pure human viewpoint and is anti-God. So we have to replace everything. That's why James says friendship with the world is hostility towards God and friendship towards God is mutually exclusive to friendship for the world. And they have failed to do this. They have failed to renovate their thinking. So he rebukes them for their continuous carnality, both mental attitude sins and sins of the tongue. And then the third point, he has, he has warned them in this section of judgment that will come on the spiritual life. And this is the thing that we have to remind ourselves of, is we may be saved, but there will be judgment for every believer, an evaluation not to determine if we go to heaven, but a judgment to determine whether or not we are inheritors of the kingdom. And we covered the entire doctrine of inheritance. And we have seen that in indwelling the land of Israel in the Old Testament did not necessarily mean you had a possession or inheritance in the land. The Levites lived in the land, but they did not possess the land. They did not have an inheritance, the Scripture says. In the same way, there will be believers in the kingdom who are not heirs of the kingdom because they have failed to advance to spiritual maturity. So there is a warning of judgment, and then James is going to pick up this theme of judgment when he comes to verse 7. He's going to develop that into his conclusion, and he is going to warn them and us that we have to have a global sort of total perspective on God's plan and purpose for our life to keep into focus the fact that it's not just that finite, day-to-day, temporal existence, living from sunup to sundown, thinking about what's going on today, what we have to do tomorrow, and sort of putting blinders on our thinking. But we must open our thinking up and realize that there's a plan that eventually we're going to end up at the judgment seat of Christ. That is our destiny. The kingdom of God, our position in the kingdom is determined by what happens at the judgment seat of Christ, and we have to keep that in mind to let that affect the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis. Because all throughout the day we're called upon to make dozens and dozens 
of decisions that reflect what is dominant in our soul, whether it's doctrine or whether it's cosmic thinking and the sin nature. It may be small, inconvenient things. You know, when we cover the whole doctrine of adversity, that adversity comes in all flavors and shapes. There's family adversity, there's uh, job, career adversity, there's financial adversity, there is uh, cultural adversity, there's meteorological adversity, there's all kinds of things that can come up. You can wake up in the morning and not have uh, recognized the forecast or the way the meteorologists have been doing around here lately. They just miss it completely. And you wake up at, in plenty of time to make an 8 o'clock appointment. You plan to leave at 7.30, but then you go outside and you realize you had six inches of snow. And now you have adversity. Now, that's not a major uh, problem, but it all of a sudden has interrupted the flow of your day. And you had just enough time to get to an 8 o'clock appointment. And now you can react in anger or you can relax and exercise a little grace orientation and problem-solving divide. And see, that's where adversity comes in. There are major adversities, minor adversities, all kinds of problems in life. And each situation presents an opportunity for us to either apply the Word or not apply the Word. And when we apply the Word, the result is growth and endurance. And when we don't apply the Word, we don't apply the doctrine in our soul, then there is uh, sin nature control. Outside adversity is converted to inside stress in the soul. And if there's not rebound and recovery, Using 1 John 1.9, then the result is continuous sin nature control, and we just go from bad to worse. So there is a warning of judgment. Now, all of this reflects the principles laid out in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine. So James has laid down doctrine. He has given us clear doctrine, especially in the first section, be quick to hear, from 120 down to 226. Then there is reproof. He has clearly been rebuking and reproving his readers for their carnality, for their mental attitude sins, for their jealousy, for their bitterness, for their anger. He's been reproving them and he has been correcting them. And now we're going to get something positive in the sense of positive instruction in righteousness. And that is the righteousness that goes with spiritual growth, uh, sanctification, progressive sanctification phase two. He says here, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, we look back at the beginning of the epistle in James, James 1, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance in some translations have patience there. This is a different word here. The word that forms the theme of the epistle is hupomone. Hupomone, which means to have um, patience, endurance, fortitude, steadfastness, and perseverance. It means to stick with God's plan and procedures no matter how much adversity there might be. Now, this is a little different concept than patience, but they relate to each other, and we're going to see tonight how patience relates to endurance. Patience is the foundation of endurance, and we will develop that in a minute. They're tied together in a couple of different passages. For example, in Colossians 1.11, we read, Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto, this is ace plus the accusative here, which indicates goal or direction, unto all patience. So, and their patience is translated, um, I think I've got these reversed on the overhead, unto all patience, and that is macro, yeah, I've got it right, patience macrothemia and long suffering, which is hupomeno really not a good translation. There should be all patience and endurance with joyfulness, kara. Now, think about this verse a minute. Paul, in Colossians 1.11, has pulled together three key concepts that are present in James, and he's linked them together. There's patience, 
macrothemia and long-suffering with joyfulness. Now, if we go back and we look at James 1, 2, we're told that count it all joy, brethren, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith, that is the doctrine in your soul, because you know that the testing of the doctrine in your soul produces endurance. So the joy comes because you know something. And we studied that, and we saw that that was a causal adverbial participle in the Greek, which should be translated because you know something. Because there is doctrine in your soul, and you know a certain principle that it, that suffering, adversity produces endurance, then because you know that, you can then have joy. Well, Paul reverses it a little bit in his sentence structure, and he indicates that the goal is patience and long-suffering with joy. So this, again, indicates that these are concepts that are related to advance in the spiritual life. So we have to ask the question, what is the key then to joy, to inner happiness, stability, tranquility, and contentment in life? It is enduring life, sticking with the plan and the procedures of God, no matter how tiresome it may be at times, no matter how difficult it may be at times, uh, despite whatever external adversities may come, uh, despite the fact that you think that by now God would have blessed you in some way, which He hasn't blessed you in yet. And so uh, you start thinking that, well, maybe doctrine really doesn't work. See, the problem with whenever I hear that, I wonder, well, what do you mean doctrine doesn't work? For some reason, sometimes folks get the idea that when Scripture says that God, um, God will always provide a way to escape, that they think that means that, that He'll take away the adversity. Well, that's not what the verse says. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There hath no temptation that is testing. Same word, parasmas, for testing there that you find in James 1. There is no temptation taken you, but such is a common to man. But God is faithful and will not test you above what you are able. Now, that ability comes from the filling of the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine resident in the soul. So God's not going to test you beyond that which you are able, which He's provided for. He's given us everything uh, necessary for life and godliness. And then it says, but will with the temptation... Make a way to escape. And people stop there. Oh, good, I can get out from under this adversity. And it says, a way to escape that you may be able to hoople endure it. See, we think that if we do what God wants us to do, that He's going to take away the adversity. And God says, no, I'm going to enable you to live under the pressure the outside pressure of that adversity without converting it into stress in the soul. You will demonstrate in your life that you can have stability, contentment, joy, and peace in the midst of the most excruciating, negative, hostile, negative circumstances, and that will glorify God. So we can have patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Now, if we understand, know and understand God's plan, we have to realize God has a blueprint for maturity. And we have studied that, and we will come back to that chart a little later on. But we know that there is a definite procedure. And this involves phase one. Phase one at the cross. And then in phase two, there is going to be testing. Testing includes adversity, which is defined as the outside pressure of negative circumstances. It doesn't matter what it is. What's an easy test and really isn't a negative circumstance to one person is an overwhelming, crushing circumstance to to another person. And some days when you wake up and there's five inches of snow in the driveway, it's just a wonderful snow day and you're going to stay in bed. The next day... You have five inches of snow, and you had things you wanted to do, and it's a crushing catastrophe. So it just depends on how you have your mind set on that particular day. Testing and adversity, if you are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit and applying doctrine, then that is going to lead eventually to spiritual maturity and rewards 
and inheritance of the judgment seat of Christ. If you're negative and you don't apply doctrine, then the result is carnality, sin nature control, and loss of rewards. And this is what happens in phase three at the judgment seat of Christ. So that is the background for understanding this passage. Is, is James is emphasizing the fact that we are going to be held accountable for what we have done with the doctrine we have been exposed to when we come to the judgment seat of Christ and not to give up in the midst of hostile, negative, adverse circumstances during life in time on a day-to-day existence. And that means that we have to live today in light of eternity. And that is a personal sense of our eternal destiny. That is the fifth problem-solving device, or sixth problem-solving device. It is our personal sense of eternal destiny. And if we, we look at the spiritual life and how the stress busters relate, we see that you have the first five stress busters are basics. Then you have, it's like a keystone or cornerstone. It's that personal sense of eternal destiny. And then you have your advanced or your mature problem-solving devices or stress busters. The basics include confession, 1 John 1, 9. The filling of the Holy Spirit is number two. Faith rest drill is number three. Grace orientation is number four. And doctrine orientation is number five. And they are very close together and one leads into another. And if you don't get those mastered, then you can't advance because they provide the foundation for both understanding personal sense of eternal destiny. If you don't understand grace, then you're not going to understand rewards. And it's always amazed me, and I've heard this here, and it's a correction because I've heard it other places, so I'm not just picking on you. But I've always heard this, oh, well, we don't want to give, give any kind of reward basis for kids who learn, memorize Scripture or do certain things because it's grace. And that runs contrary to grace. Yet God has a reward procedure for obedience and endurance called the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a work salvation or a work sanctification, but it is a reward system. So there's nothing wrong with having that as an incentive. Somehow we think that incentives run contrary to grace. And that's just wrong thinking. So to understand personal sense of your eternal destiny, the judgment seat of Christ, the importance of rewards, we have to understand grace. That it's even the, what we do that, uh, that, that is the basis for rewards is done how? It's done under the filling of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who produces the fruit in our lives. So we don't do it. We just exercise our volition to be positive and to learn the Word. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who metabolizes it, assimilates it into our thinking, and He is the one who produces the fruit. It's not up to us. And then there's reward for that. Isn't that a grace system? We get rewarded for what God does in our life. So grace orientation, doctrine orientation, became the foundation for a personal sense of eternal destiny. Then we get into the love triplex, where you have personal love for God, uh, impersonal love for all mankind, and then occupation with Christ. So we have personal love for God, impersonal love or unconditional love for all mankind, occupation with Christ. All of this, you cannot understand love if you don't understand grace. And as we're going to see in our study in John 15, that loving Christ is directly related to abiding in His Word, obeying His commandments. There's a direct correlation. And that's doctrinal orientation. So in spiritual infancy, we have to get grace orientation and doctrinal orientation down or we'll never be able to truly understand what love for God is or impersonal love for all mankind is or occupation with Christ. And then the final capstone is going to be inner happiness and that joy that is uniquely Christ that He uh, gives us. So that is how it all sort of works together. Now, the other way of looking at this is that these are all skills. They're not just 
problem, ways to solve problems or to avoid stress, but they're skills. Now, in order to become accomplished with any skill, you have to practice it over and over and over again. You think of someone who is, that is a, a uh, brilliant concert pianist, and they practice eight, ten hours a day, and over and over again, and they play uh, various uh, keyboard exercises and technique. I used to hate that, both in piano and when I played trombone in, in junior high and high school. I'd have to go in four or five hours a day into the band room and just practice technique and just, and it's meaningless. There's no rhythm. You just play scales and you play tough exercises, but you do it over and over and over again. And then when you come to that point where you're out there and you have a piece put in front of you and you play that, you've developed your skills. You develop your technique so that now you can do the real thing. Well, that's what this is like in the spiritual life. Same thing applies in sports. You get out there and football players get out there at the spring training and they work on technique, they work on drills over and over and over again so that when game time comes, it happens automatically. It's a reflex action. This is the same thing that happens. We continuously need to practice confession. And as a result of confession, we're filled with the Holy Spirit and then we continuously practice faith rest drill, thinking of promises, what promises apply. Constantly asking yourself that question, okay, I'm in this situation, what promise applies? Well, the reason you get a, I get a blank look sometimes when I say that is because you haven't memorized any promises, and if there aren't any promises up here, it doesn't matter how many promises are in your Bible, when you're driving down the freeway and somebody cuts you off, and, or you have a flat tire or a blowout, or you're in a major wreck, or you're at work and there's some catastrophe there, it doesn't matter what's in your doctrinal notebook at home. It doesn't matter what's in the Bible at home. What matters is the promises and the principles that you have in your soul that you can claim by means of faith right then and there. That's why it's important to memorize Scripture. I can't say that enough. It's important to memorize Scripture, making that a priority in your family and in your family life because you develop the skill of mixing faith with the promises of God only by continuously doing it day after day after day after day. Same thing with grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, and all of the stress busters is they function like skills and you practice them over and over and over again. Every time there's an opportunity, every time something comes up, you ought to be thinking, how can I apply doctrine? What's the doctrine that applies here? How do, what, what stress buster applies? And that leads to spiritual growth. So this is what James is talking about when he deals with the whole concept of endurance and understanding that there is a blueprint for our life and we have to understand its structure and where it's going so that that determines how we handle situations right now. And so we come to the main command in this particular verse, which is to be patient from the Greek word makrothumeo. The verb form, makrothumia, is the noun. And I want you to notice one thing. It should come to your mind right now that we've been studying. This is going to pull together for some of you some of the stuff that we've been studying, the doctrines we've been studying. John 15. John 15 uses the whole analogy of abiding in the vine. It's an agricultural analogy. What do we find as an illustration in the middle of this verse? Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. The production of soil. Literally, in the Greek, it is not the precious produce. It's karpon. It's not produce. It's karpos, which is the word for fruit. Same thing we have in John 15 and in Galatians chapter 5. It's talking about valuable fruit here. It's talking about timion. That's the adjective, and it means valuable fruit. That is the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is the, what the analogy is to illustrate. So we're to be patient because the Holy Spirit is producing something in our life. So we're going to tie together John 15. We're going to tie that into Galatians 5. Now in Galatians 5, I ended up with this Sunday morning in John. This is a really important uh, principle. It hit me as I went through John 15 about two weeks ago. I called up George Meisinger out of Chafer Seminary. said, George, what do you think about this? George says, I want you to write a whole paper on that and present that at the pastor's conference in May. This is what it is. Really simple. I'm going to put it up here on the overhead. 
as you know, one of the major problems we're facing today in Christianity is the whole issue of grace gospel. Everybody wants to import some kind of works into the gospel, whether front-loading it in legal, some kind of legalism, believe and be baptized, believe and reform your life, or back-loading it with lordship salvation. In lordship salvation, the underlying assumption is that if you're a true believer, you're going to have fruit in your life. That's something that's visible. If you are not a true believer, you know, we've studied that problem of true and false belief. That's no, no such thing in the Scripture. If you are not a true believer, then there is no fruit. And so they take passages like John 15, that abiding is believing. And the branch that abides is a true believer, produces fruit. So what we see is the principle in John 15 that abiding is the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit. Let's put the Greek in here. Meno is the Greek. Just to remind you, in our passage, we're talking about hupa meno. So that's going to tell you how this relates a little bit. And we're going to see some other things. Now, in Galatians 5, we saw that it was walking by means of the Holy Spirit that was the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit. Let me draw it a little differently. Now, if this is the consequence, and in one passage, abiding is the sole and necessary uh, condition, and in another passage, walking by the Holy Spirit is the sole and necessary condition, then the conclusion is that abiding is synonymous, may have a little different emphasis, but it's synonymous to walking. Abiding in Christ is synonymous with walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. If abiding is believing, then walking is believing. See what I've just done? Nobody would agree that walking by the Spirit is tantamount to being saved. Because that would mean, in the context of Galatians 5, that if you're a believer, you're going to automatically produce the fruit of the Spirit. But you see, in essence, that's what the Lordship crowd is really saying, that it's sort of automatic. And I have said for years that there is some level of almost incipient mysticism underlying Reformed thought. People have challenged me on that, but I stick by it. I think there's a, something hidden in there that's very dangerous because of this idea that when you're saved, at regeneration, what they're really saying is that not only are you given a new human spirit, but your sin nature is somewhat diminished. And it's just not going to be as nasty and evil as it was before. And you're just not going to do certain things because my, my, I just can't stand the thought that a believer might do some of those hideous things that unbelievers do. And there's this element of self-righteousness. But the mystical element there is that somehow I've been metaphysically changed such that I will automatically do certain things. And it denies the fact that fruit is the result, production is the result of obedience. Obedience to what? Obedience to principles. If all I know is that somebody told me, trust Christ and you'll be saved, and I trust Christ and I'm saved like the thief on the cross, then I don't know any more to apply. So there can't be any production. So obviously this is false, that abiding and walking cannot be synonymous to believing. So what we see, though, is that abiding and walking produce something. They produce fruit in the life of the believer. This is the goal of the believer's life is fruit production. But if you ever grow anything, you know it takes a long time from germination to fruit production. It may take 60, 90 days. It may take, in the case of fruit trees, two or three years before there is actual fruit. It takes time and there are certain dynamics that have to go on before uh, fruit is produced. 
So it, it, because of that time that is involved, there has to be uh, an element of patience. Patience in the process, and that is what James is talking about here. Now, if we stop and we just look at the passage, I want you to catch, a, catch the flow of his argument here in these, in these verses. In verse 7 and 8, the key is patience. Now, the way you know that is that macrothemia, macrothumeo, the verb, is used three times in two verses. That ought to be a clue right away. Even in the English, you see that patience is there three times. Be patient, therefore, brethren, that the farmer waits being patient about it. And you too, verse 8, be patient. So the theme there is patience. And twice, patience is related to the coming of the Lord. That means you have to have a total understanding of God's plan in order to be patient. Verse 9 is a prohibition. See, 7 and 8 is very positive. Be patient. Verse 9 is a prohibition. Do not complain. So your ability to avoid complaining, grumbling and murmuring is forbidden in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Do not complain is verse 9. And then verse 10 and 11, we have Old Testament examples of patience and endurance from the Old Testament prophets and Job. In verses 7 through 9, patience is mentioned four times. And then in verses 10 and 11, endurance is mentioned two times. So what is the theme of verses 7 through 12? Patience and endurance. Now, the reason I emphasize that is that James introduces the theme of patience and endurance back in chapter 1. How to attain patience and endurance is developed under three principles of being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger in the body of the epistle. Then he returns to the theme of patience and endurance in verses 7 through 12. This, I'm just setting you up right now. Where does sickness enter into this? That's the question we need to ask. To bring sickness in verse 13, physical illness, into this discussion it doesn't fit. It's out of context. That's why I'm belaboring the point of setting the context here so that by the time we get down to verse 13 through 18, we will understand what James is really talking about there, and it's not going to be physical illness. Now, let's start dealing with some of the exegesis of this particular verse. starts off with the command, the aorist active imperative of macrothumeo. The aorist imperative we have seen emphasizes a priority in contrast to the present imperative. Now, present imperative emphasizes something that should be a general principle governing the believer's life, a characteristic, a habit pattern that should be there. Now, that does not mean that macrothumeo should not be a characteristic or habit pattern. It's not saying that. It's saying that in this particular instance, because of the circumstances at hand, James wants to call his readers' attention to the fact that they need to be patient. They need to be long-suffering. Literally, it's a compound word. The compound is from the first part, macra, which means long or lengthy, and thumeo, from thumos, which means anger. It means long on wrath, or in other words, it means long-tempered and not short-tempered. It means to have patience to wait for things, to be patient, to be forbearing, according to Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich lexicon. It is, um, in the Old Testament, it is primarily associated with God's long-suffering and patience towards the sinfulness of man. The, his righteous wrath is withheld because he is long-suffering with the sinfulness of Israel. Because he is faithful to his promises and faithful to himself, he is long-suffering. So there is, in the background of the word macrothumeo, thumeo, of course, reminds us of wrath. It's the word thumas for wrath. It's the tension between God's grace and God's wrath towards man. 
Now, this works itself out in terms of judgment. It's always or it's often kind of in, lurking in the background of this particular word. Let's look at a verse in Luke. Turn in your Bibles to Luke to get pick up the context. We'll focus on verses 7 and 8, but I don't have time, didn't have room to put the whole thing on the overhead. So we'll look at the context in Luke 8. I want you to remember that Macrothemia is commanded of the believer here. Earlier in James 1-2, joy was commanded of the believer. And in James 2, we have the command to love one another as ourselves, which is the royal law. So you have in Galatians 5, if you walk by means of the Spirit... The fruit of the Spirit eventually is what? Love, joy, peace. Right there, first four. They're produced by the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean that you're volitionally unengaged in the process. It's produced by the Holy Spirit, but we have to apply doctrine to get there. That's why there's the command to, to be patient, the command to love, and the command to, to uh, have joy. Now, in Luke 18 is a scenario that discusses the importance of prayer. Verse 1, Now he, Jesus, was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose Heart, not to give up, not to lose endurance. Uh, in the text, it's not to give up, not to lose endurance. So there we have the emphasis on perseverance in prayer, which means that we ought to have more than three people show up at prayer meeting at 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. We've, our numbers have been dwindling of late. And prayer and corporate prayer is important and stressed in the Scriptures. So we are at all times to pray and not to lose heart. Saying there was, and here's the parable, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God. He lacked respect for God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. She just keeps coming back. She's not going to take no for an answer. And she just has, she is continuously importuning him to solve her problem. So finally he's just wear, worn down and he says, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God who loves you, who is righteous, Shall not God who loves you bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night and will not he delay long over them? In other words, if this unrighteous judge who doesn't care about any God or anybody, if he will finally give, up, give in to the importunate cries of this, this widow, then won't God who is righteous and who loves you with an infinite amount of love also answer your prayers when you continually bring them to him? Now, he says, this is verse 7, he, it says, Now will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night, and will He delay long over them? And the word translated delay long is macrothumeo. And the idea is that God is not going to be long-suffering and wait a lengthy amount of time over that. But look at the next verse. I tell you that He will bring about justice for them speedily. The contrast is between the length of time, the patience that is needed in endurance and prayer, and the, the fact that once God begins to answer their prayer, the justice will be executed quickly. And notice what it's connected to in the next verse, next sentence. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth. So in this passage you have a connection between the exercise of the Supreme Court of Heaven in justice 
God's long-suffering towards man and the whole idea of patience and the second coming of Christ in judgment. Now let's turn back to James chapter 5. We went to Luke 18 simply to show there is a connection in many passages between the concept of long-suffering and patience. God is awaiting because He wants to give mankind every opportunity for uh, to believe in the Gospel and to respond. So He waits a long time and He will execute justice and answer prayer, maybe not in this life, but maybe at the judgment seat of Christ. So that brings in this particular connection. So we have here, be patient is the aorist active imperative mandate to the believer to make this a priority in life. Be patient, therefore, brethren. Brethren indicates that he's still talking to believers and has throughout this epistle. Until the coming of the Lord. Now, the word coming is the Greek word parousia. Parousia. Write this up on the overhead. It's a well-known Greek word. A lot of debate over this, the meaning of this word. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. Parousia. And it's just a general word for coming. Now, one of the problems that you get into when you study prophecy is that some people want to make this a technical term. And we're going to see tonight that this is not a technical term for either the rapture or the second coming of Christ. Now, introducing those terms, we're going to have to understand something about the coming of Christ. We look at the overhead... we'll see that there are two stages to the second coming of Christ. We are here in this time period between the cross and the end of the church age, which ends with the rapture of the church. We don't know whether we're in the middle or the end. We, I suspect we are close to the end of the church age, but no one knows. And that's related to a doctrine that is in this passage, and we will probably get into next time, and that is the doctrine of the imminency of the rapture, the doctrine of the any moment return of Christ. There are no prophecies that have to be fulfilled prior to the coming of Christ. Paul expected Christ to come in his day. We'll see some other passages to indicate that other uh, apostles believed that Christ would come during their lifetime. He did not, of course, uh, despite whatever the um, uh, preterist uh, say and their uh, preterist interpretation of the Old Testament, I mean of, of, of prophecy that it all was fulfilled by 70 A.D., and that's absolutely false. We're still in the church age, and the church age ends with the rapture of the church. But Jesus does not come to the earth. He only comes in the clouds. The second coming takes place approximately seven years later, the seven years are known as the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, and the second coming of Christ is when He comes to the earth. But there are some passages that, especially in the Old Testament, that don't see the distinction. They just generally are talking in very vague terms about when Christ comes back. Sometimes the word parousia is used technically of the rapture. Sometimes it's used to refer to the second coming but it is wrong to think that it is inherently a technical term for one or the other. This is a major issue in the whole debate between what is called pre-tribulation rapture and post-tribulation rapture. The pre-trib rapture means that God, I mean that Christ returns before pre, before the tribulation. There are many who believe that Christ does not return for the church until after the tribulation, which is called the post-tribulation rapture. And because the word parousia is used sometimes to refer, obviously, to the second coming, they think that every time you find the word, it refers to the second coming, and we're going to demonstrate the fallaciousness of that right now. Here are some passages that 
show that the coming of Christ, his parousia, is related to the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15.23 But each in his own order, indicating that there is an order of resurrections. Christ is the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Those who are Christ's are believers in the church age, and they will be resurrected at his coming, and that is at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 states, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Talking to the Thessalonian believers that we will all be together at the pre- in the presence of the Lord at his coming. So that's obviously the rapture. Then we have 1 Thessalonians 4.15 For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, And that is clearly indicating that the coming of the Lord in the context there is when He comes in the clouds and so that is the rapture. And that is again the word parousia. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 states, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body, incidentally, that's a great passage to demonstrate the trichotomy of man, that man is made up of spirit, soul, and body, that may your spirit, soul, and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a passage dealing with the rapture, not the second coming of Christ. Again, we have 2 Thessalonians 2.1. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. That is the rapture, and that is not the second coming. 1 John 2.28. Now, little children, abide in Him. Now, see, we ought to have a little little recognition and comprehension here when we get to 1 John and get to a word like abide. Now, little children... Abide in Him. Stay in fellowship with Him. So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Shame at the judgment seat of Christ for those who have failed to abide in Him and walk in fellowship and advance to spiritual maturity. But there are other passages that clearly indicate that parousia refers to the second coming, not the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 So that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before God our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Jesus does not come with all the saints at the second coming. We have seen in the previous passages that the saints are taken to Him at the rapture. So that this is just one way of arguing that the rapture is a distinct event from the second coming. He comes with His saints at the second coming. And then 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Then that lawless one, that's a reference to the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. And that's clearly what takes place at the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period and is a second coming passage. So these verses indicate that simply by finding the word parousia, we're not sure whether whether the passage is talking about rapture or second coming. In James 5, 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now here it's obviously the rapture. We're not because we're going to get into judgment issues. That's the judgment seat of Christ. It's not talking about the second coming. It's talking about the rapture. So, brethren, be patient until the rapture, the coming of the Lord. And then we have an illustration. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. Now, that should be translated the honorable or the virtuous. It's from the Greek word... uh, Timion, which means uh, honor or virtue. It can have the meaning of value. In some places it relates to money. That a pastor teacher is worthy of double honor. Same word indicates that the pastor teacher should be paid. 
Uh, behold, the farmer waits for the precious or the valuable production, karpos, fruit, the valuable fruit of the soil, being patient about it. And the word patient there is makrothumeo, but it's a present active participle without the article, which means that it is to be taken as a participle of means. Adverbial participle of means, be patient. Behold, the farmer waits by being patient. Waiting is done by being patient, by being long-suffering. Now, why is it that he is patient? Well, then there's an explanation. He understands the dynamics of production until he gets the early and late rains. Now, there's something that goes on in this latter phrase that, is, that has produced so much confusion in, in our generation and in our century, and that is the total misunderstanding of what is meant by the early and the, the former and the latter rains in some passages. It's, a, it's mentioned in Joel 2.23. It's just a reference to the meteorology that takes place in Israel. The summer is dry. You start getting a return to a rainy season and rain in October and November. So the parched ground begins to open up and it makes it easy to till it and they plant in uh, October and November. And then there's a still a, still get rain during the winter, but it's not very much. And then there's another heavy rainy season in the spring. The rainy season in the fall is called the former rain. The rain in the spring is called the latter rain. And it simply indicates the blessing of God. You have to go all the way back into the Old Testament. You go back into passages like Deuteronomy 11.14, and there you discover that God promises to bring the former and the latter rains on Israel if they are obedient to Him. And the whole image is that if you follow the law, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to increase your produce, give you economic prosperity, and bless the land. And so when Joel comes along and uses that phrase, it's a reference to the fact that God is blessing them and will bless them, bless the nation Israel in the, um, in the, after the second coming when they are restored to the land. The charismatics have come along and they took it as a sign of gifts, that there would be an early manifestation of spiritual gifts at the beginning of the church age, then they would die out and then there would be the latter rain. Uh, there would be a restoration of those signed gifts at the end of the church age before Christ came back and, and there would be a great end time revival. Now that is fundamental to Pentecostal theology. And it has, it was, the, the most horrendous form of it came out of Saskatchewan, Canada right after World War II in the late 40s and was associated with the great heal, what was called the great healing revivals that produced men like Oral Roberts and Grant Osborne and uh, F.W. Grant and a few others that were very famous at the 40s and 50s and gained national, uh, national uh, uh, exposure. Now, what's happened is you get a, uh, some, some charismatic groups even declared what happened then is heresy. And it was linked with some really weird doctrines like the manifest sons of God. Which, which was just an absurd doctrine that if you're a really believer, you're going to manifest all these gifts in your life. And this stuff was even declared heresy by the Assemblies of God in the late, uh, in the late 50s and early 60s. But then it got resurrected again in the 70s, and it goes by different names now, and, and, but it's the same doctrines, and you find it with the health and wealth crowd and with a lot of other things, and it is dominating charismatic theology today. But what they've done is they've taken a meteorological illustration based on the Old Testament covenant that God is just going to provide meteorological blessing so there can be economic prosperity in an agricultural environment to Israel and they've made it into some sort of, of uh, expression of, of eschatological benefit that there would be a restoration of the gifts before Christ's return. Well, at the same time, they would teach imminency. Well, if Christ is imminent, then there's nothing that happens ahead of time. See, there's this inherent illogic there. That's one reason that many charismatics are giving up dispensationalism, by the way, and have been for the last 20 or 30 years. So the whole idea that the... And you'll hear that phrase sometimes, and I just wanted to have that little excursus there, that when you hear the phrase latter rain, that's what it's referring to in the Scriptures, is this just the 
the, the cycle of rains in Israel, and it refers back to God's promise to bless Israel agriculturally if they were uh, uh, obedient to him. So what this is pointing out in the second half of verse 7 is that just as the farmer understands the agricultural cycle and knows what the dynamics are, and that allows him to wait patiently for the production of fruit, so the believer understands God's plan for his life and understands the blueprint that we have on the overhead so that understanding that fruit ultimately is going to be manifest and rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, he is able to wait patiently through all the tests and trials of life and walk by means of the Spirit so that it will all be made manifest eventually. That's the thrust of this illustration. Just as the farmer has to understand the total scope and process of, of the of the growth cycle of, of whatever his plant is, whatever his crop is, and he can wait for it because he understands the dynamic, so the believer can have patience because he understands the dynamics that are involved in spiritual growth. So that's the point of the illustration. And then in verse 8, James comes back and says, You too be patient. The third time he's used the word, Strengthen your hearts, that is the inner thinking of your soul, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Engizo is the Greek word from the noun ingus, which means imminent. And so next time we will come back and we will look at the doctrine of the imminency of the return of Christ and do a little survey of the doctrine of the rapture with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the fact that you have given us so much information. You have not left us to guess what your plan is for our life, what your will is. You have laid it all out in the Scriptures. You have given us the blueprint so that we can understand how the Holy Spirit is working, what He is doing, what the goal is, what the process is, and what the means are so that we may advance to spiritual maturity. Now, Father, we pray that we would remember these things and be challenged by them and not forget them as we go forth and that God the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.